thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, leading publishers of books, directories, educational guides and magazines aimed at schools in the UK and beyond. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, good evening. Welcome to Teachers Talk Radio uh, once again for the late show um it's a nice sunny day here in manchester and as always this show is brought to you in association with john cat john cat are a fantastic publisher of all things books especially in the education sphere and you can access their content at johncatbookshop.com and find out about their latest releases and offers we'll be chatting a little bit more about john cat as we go through the show this evening got a, a really interesting one lined up for you this evening um notably we are going to be discussing um all things lesson planning in part one um and particularly the idea that lesson planning the art of lesson planning has been lost in the push to reduce teacher workload and streamline um, things in school. And the reason that I chose this topic was a tweet actually by one of my guests this evening, David, who's already joined us and will be talking in a minute. And he said, to quote, my hypothesis is that in some schools, the art of lesson planning has been lost alongside the unnecessary paperwork and workload reduction the art of marking has likewise been lost. The formative assessment has gone away with the simplification of marking policies. Slide decks are not plans. Now, this got quite an interesting reaction in the sense that most people seem to agree uh, with this sort of um, idea that, uh, that lesson planning has become this sort of very slim down version let's say of what it once was um and that that idea has grown quite significantly um not just it's not just david saying it but lots of people um have been making similar noises and and sometimes that has dwelt into the idea that powerpoint is bad (laughs) i mean we've, we've we've i've seen that a lot and i've heard that a lot from teachers oh powerpoint you know don't use powerpoint um sort of that that's not necessarily this point but i I guess people sometimes look for things to blame for this and powerpoint seems to sometimes take quite a hit in that regard um so anyway let's introduce uh the first one of my guests which is david david if you want to unmute yourself and say hi Hi, Tom. Um, hi to everybody else. Hello, David. Uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It is a pleasure. Can you give yourself, uh, give everybody a little rundown of your current role? Yeah. Um, so I'm currently a primary school uh, executive head teacher, um, but of one school. It's a large three, four elementary primary school um, on the edges of Staffordshire and Birmingham. Brilliant. And um, I'm always interested in this as a chief executive <laughs> How do you how do you work your way up into that position, David? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, in my in my case, I did uh, time served as a as a head teacher yeah. for uh, thirteen years, 
Uh, then I applied for the job and, and they gave no, it to me. No, but I mean so. before, before head teacher. Did you start as like a primary school teacher? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I um, tra- trained straight from sixth form into uh, teacher training college, into primary schools, um, had a number of uh, subject coordinating roles. Uh, and then that there are less opportunities than there are perhaps in, in secondary schools, but there are phase leaders and deputy headships and, and then headships and sort of sort of rose through the ranks there. And in primary schools, the, the further you go into senior management, sometimes the further away you get from the classroom. And, and I do accept that, that one of the people who responded to that tweet that you so eloquently quoted did say, well, you know, it's easy for senior management to say that they don't have to plan. Yes. Well, we're going to dig into your tweet. Um, it, it, we're going we're gonna to sort of dissect it a little bit and talk about what drove you to it, um, shall we say, in, in a few moments. Before we do that, I'll just introduce my other guest who's joining us, who may also have views on this, which is Margarita. Margarita, do you want to say hi to everyone if you can unmute yourself? Hello. Hello. Good evening. I'm Margarita Mortima. Hi. How Hello, are you? Not too bad. And yourself? Yes, yes, I'm I'm quite excited actually. This is quite new well, to me. I wouldn't get too <laughs> ahead of yourself with this. Um because <laughs> you know, it may disappoint in the end. But yes, we do aim to please. Oh, no, no, no. Aim to please. <laughs> um Margarita, can you just give a very brief um summary of what you currently do? Yes. Well, I'm currently a head of a Spanish in a small, comprehensive, well, small, we got 1,700 <laughs> students. Not, well, so it's not as small, small. It's, it's a comprehensive school. Uh, but uh, yes, but previously I was, I was actually head of a Spanish in a sixth form college. I've been working also in uh, independent schools and I work also as an associate lecturer at Sarah University wow, okay. and also work for AQA. OK, so how have you got time to do this? <laughs> well, um, I think, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot about planning. Yeah, you did say. Although, booking, I mean, you, you were did, saying about yeah, you that. You did but... say you needed me to, to sort of direct you as to when you should cook dinner, didn't you? In our messages. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's, it's a lot about planning your day and planning, you know, re- your resources and, you know, and uh, and I think, you know, planning is very important still. I mean, I, I don't know if people will agree with me, but for me, it's actually really important to plan what I'm doing and, um, and even, you know, planning all the, you know, the, the sort of term, you know, subjects and you know all the all the topics you're going to be covering and all that of course of course well we're gonna we're gonna sort of dig into this now with david and then margarita i'll be bringing you in at various points to sort of say your thoughts so david let's let's start with your tweet then um i'll read it out again for everyone really quickly and then david you can sort of tell us where this sort of arose from and what you're thinking is you said my hypothesis is that in some schools the art of planning has been lost alongside the unnecessary paperwork and workload reduction. The art of marking has also been lost. The formative assessment has gone away with the simplification of marking policies. David, can you tell us a little bit about this tweet? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, I think, um, you know, tweets are quite reductionist and and that that might sound slightly clickbaity for the the thread that followed. Um, but, But my thinking was that in some schools, uh, in some contexts that I've worked in or, or been to see, 
where lessons are really, really successful, they are more than the sum of their parts. And it's very clear that the teacher implicitly knows the learning intentions and how they're going to carry every single student or, or pupil in their class to that learning intention by the end of, at the end of the lesson or the end of the unit or the end of the week or the sequence or whatever it might be. And um, by the same token, um, and it tends to be in, in perhaps larger schools where planning in inverted commas can be shared, um, it's not always apparent in less successful lessons that the teacher has gone through that thought process, done the thinking, which, you know, that's an interchangeable term with planning for me, thinking, planning. Um, and in primary schools, particularly at the moment, where we are under immense pressure to have a broad and balanced curriculum, where every single subject is, is well planned and well sequenced and there's um, disciplinary and substantive knowledge that needs to be imparted across sequences. And don't forget, and across don't forget the across... hinterland knowledge, David. Or the, I, I did or for... the interplanetary <laughs> knowledge is what I call it. That's like in the further yeah. reaches of hinterland. Interplanetary knowledge. <laughs> Fantastic. Um... Don't laugh too much. <laughs> you, you lost what you, you can't, You're not allowed to be CEO. You've got to be very staid uh, and cautious. Oh, no, don't, 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 don't promote me, Tom. <laughs> just an executive head. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but in, in those classrooms and those, that terminology aside, Let's put that to one side and let's put the people who may use that terminology to one side for a minute, um, although they are, you know, complicit in this. Um, the, the, the art of planning for the children that you teach, I feel, when we went for workload reduction, um, we looked at streamlining planning and actually with that exterior um, emphasis on a broad and balanced curriculum and lots and lots of really good bespoke plans available um, and high quality resources that go alongside those bespoke plans available something gets lost with you know it's almost the baby with the bathwater. and for for some teachers there may well be a temptation to five minutes before the lesson load up the slide deck try and get through and there will be outlying pupils um, at, at various ends of various spectrums within the classroom for whom that's just not good enough. Mm. And you may get to the end of that lesson and you've got your planning for the next day, your bespoke off the peg planning and the temptation to plow on, further impacting on perhaps those children who've picked up misconceptions or not picked up the key learning that they need to take them on is then compounded because you're just going on to Tuesday's lesson as it would I mean, be tomorrow. basically what you're talking about, and I've also sort of... I've come across this online. I can't say I've I can't say I've met many teachers who do this. I I can probably think of a few if I really wrap my brains, but it's the sort of idea that you open your PC, you click the on button, you go to that little yellow file explorer box, you click on that, you open the file that says curriculum, and inside there you've got like 15 PowerPoints that are labeled 1 to 15. And before every lesson you just click into that PowerPoint and you go through whatever's on it. And, so, and, and in some cases, maybe not even look at it properly, right? Is that sort of the that, idea you're getting at here? That would be the most extreme yes. version of yes. it. Um, but but the, more, the more commonplace for me would be where there's two, three teachers within, within a phase or possibly, I don't know about secondary, but within a department, 
and and the workload is divvied up into thirds um, yeah. in order to undertake the planning. Now, one person's done the thinking there, and with the best will in the world, they haven't done the thinking for your class or yeah. your context. Yeah. I mean, that's that's more what I was. I mean, at. I've been in that position before, where you know, similar sort of thing, and. I just haven't been able to do it. If somebody has given me a PowerPoint, I don't think I've ever used something someone's given me in exactly the form they've given me it in, in my entire career. I, I think there has always been some adaption needed, required, or that I've just simply wanted to do. Um, because I know that that's fit my teaching style, that's fit the way I, I do things. That's, you know, and more often than not, if you're if, if you're even if you go onto an educational resources website and you just download a resource or something it's it's rare that it will fulfill exactly what you as a, as yourself as a teacher want it to without you doing something with it however david let me throw this back to you because i know in your in your sort of tweet there you mentioned that the art of planning has been lost alongside the unnecessary paperwork and workload reduction. I think the problem here would be, one of my sort of challenges to you would be, if you're a full-time classroom teacher, or, or even just a partially full-time classroom teacher, and we'll talk to Margarita about this in a minute. Mm. Um, for me, I have probably created a bit of a problem for myself at various points in my career by not sacrificing on planning because what's then happened is I just ended up with this, with this jam up of like data collection and all these other things that then I'm at a disadvantage because I haven't skimped on my planning. Right. And that, and the reason I didn't skimp on it is because I know that if I don't put that, time and that application into my planning i'm going to have a bad lesson and if i have a bad lesson that's going to put me in a bad mood and if i have a bad lesson maybe that'll mean i give out more sanctions which then need to be logged and followed up on maybe if i have a bad lesson the children will learn less and i'll have to do that lesson again and so on and so forth. so i've always prioritized the planning and i've always probably taken longer than i should on the planning even when i was a head of department which actually put me at a detriment i think to other members of staff what would you say to that this show is brought to you in partnership with john cat educational a leading publisher of books directories educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the uk and beyond have you checked out their latest releases don't miss out visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today happy reading yeah, um, and, and it's clear that you're a conscientious educator, Tom. Um, <laughs> and, and I was I was not similarly afflicted um, when I was a classroom teacher. I hated planning. Did um, you? I love really, it. I really like it. You know. I, well, this is this this is the crux of the matter, really. Is it's and, and this is where a couple of people who who perhaps didn't um, have an affinity with the initial tweet uh, were 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 misconstruing what I was trying to say, because we equate planning quite often. And in my head, I equate planning with paperwork. And that is pro formas. That is um, boxes you have to fill, um, sometimes unnecessarily, and, and a sheet that you hand in. or and, and that's gone away with the 
kind of off the peg schemes and, and the, the more detailed medium term planning, certainly that we have in, in primary now. The kind of planning I'm talking about can be done on a blank notebook. And it's just what you were just saying there. You make a few adaptations to whatever materials you're presenting with, be that a PowerPoint or be that something else. You then own that lesson for the children you're going to deliver to. And, you know, the flip side of that, you know, is also planning for the children you've taught. So you need to have that assessment for learning at your fingertips as well. So you know which children are going to need a little bit more support, which children are going to need a nudge, which children are going to fly which children to pair up today because X can support Y one with, with groups. Uh, David, that's the kind of planning. I'm David, have about. you moved slightly from where you were? Because your signal's starting to drop slightly. I'm sorry. I uh, don't know, but I'll bring Margarita in while you're going back to exactly yes. where you were. Margarita, do you have any thoughts on what David was saying? Yeah, I was thinking about lots of things. I mean, I totally agree with you, Tom, that planning is actually a pleasure, uh, at least for me. I find it very creative. It's actually uh, where you actually put all your thoughts uh, into what you're going to deliver. However, uh, the beauty of teaching is that it's a bit like acting. You plan and prepare, but you never got the same students, even on the same days, you have you know, I teach four different year A classes and the material I prepare, I have to adjust it. And sometimes it comes out differently in every lesson. And and I have to adjust to the students who got different needs as well. Um, and one thing I think is really important is that, of course, you plan your lessons with the objectives and you actually start backwards. What do you want to achieve by the end of the lesson or by the end of the, the cycle? Yeah or by the end of term. And then you work through the stages. How are you going to achieve that? Um, so there's always, uh, you know, there's always time for retrieval, for, you know, uh, clarifying misconceptions. So it's not just that, you know, the planning that you do ha has got steps. The steps, obviously, you know, in, in the case of foreign languages, I'm, I'm following the uh, epi methodology f uh, from Gianfranco Conti. So I tend to follow you know, that sort of kind of sequence. So um, being, being obviously a bit more experienced than uh, other teachers, I got lots of resources, but I keep on, you know, reviewing them. I keep on adding things. I keep on, you know, uh, for myself as well, thinking why, why didn't something didn't work so well. But I mean, I do understand that, you know, if you're actually new into teaching or if you haven't got much time, you have to think about ways to simplify the planning, but you still have to do planning. I mean, uh, one of the controversial things I'm going to mention is I don't know how people will feel if you start using lesson planning, using uh, in artificial intelligence, you know, chat box. Yeah. What do you that think That was something about that? that we were talking what, about what uh, in, in a couple of webinars. And I don't know if people feel that that is actually non-ethical. I'm not really judging teachers. I think everyone is trying to do a professional job and your circumstances are all different. Um, so, you know, if you haven't got a lot of time, you can actually use that as a base maybe. Yeah. Or, you know, in, when we were in lockdown, we decided, uh, you know, I decided with my colleagues in the Spanish department that we were actually going to create 
lessons on, you know, like I was going to do the year nine, my colleague was going to do the year eight classes for that week and we were going to share because, you know, it was a lot of workload. So, you know, I didn't mind sharing lessons that my colleague created because we were all, you know, we were starting from the same background, you know. So I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it depends on your teams, depends on how you feel about planning. But planning is is an essential part of the process, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to pick up on, on a few bits you said. I mean, personally, if you want my view, I don't think there's anything unethical about using AI to aid planning or to even form the basis of planning or whatever, as long as it works, as long as it works for the teacher. So if it is used in a way where the teacher looks at it and goes, this is useful and this is good. If that, if that, if that's the case, mm -hmm. then for me, there isn't really any sort of, you know, any sort of ethical dilemma about using AI. I, personally, it's like, use it, use whatever to be able yeah. to be better yeah. and, and to make improvements in what you do or to make your job easier. Like that's my personal view yeah. on that. Um, D David, can I flip back to you? I don't know whether we've got you back, but I just wanted to, I wanted you to sort of go into a bit on the, on the, on what you said, which was, my hypothesis is that in some schools, the art of planning has been lost alongside the unnecessary paperwork and workload reduction. Can you give me some examples of the sort of workload reduction you mean that has led to the art of planning being lost? Yeah, can you hear me now, Tom? Yes, I hope so. Don't move again, please, David. Stay exactly where you are. No, I'm, I'm frozen <laughs> to the spot. I was actually riveted by what Margarita was saying. Yes. and She, like yourself, Tom, clearly understands the art of planning. Um, and, and just to just to touch on the AI point, um, I, I don't disagree with it either. Exactly what you said. If it works for the teacher, and, and more importantly, it works to support and impart something valuable to the pupils, then then more power to them. Um, and so, unnecessary paperwork, um, comma workload reduction. Okay. So, that the kind of planning I didn't like was was planning pro formers almost straightjacketing the teachers into a box filling exercise. That's not the kind of planning I, I, I'm talking about. And if that's not our definition of planning, then, then I really liked planning too, because it's all the things that you were talking about. But I think for some colleagues, that it's chicken and egg for me. There's a chicken and egg scenario in which experienced colleagues don't need to plan or think about planning because they do those things naturally and so it could just be a, an exercise book with with some annotations in or annotations on the medium term plans. I think for less experienced colleagues who've not been through the journey in which they, they need to think about the overarching aims and the planning with the end, you know, start with the end in mind and all of those elements that Margarita was talking about, they may well fall into the trap where there's a sequence of lessons that never become greater than the sum of their parts. Um, and that's it's important that they don't have to sit at home filling out lesson pro formas. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure the state of ITT at the moment since the, uh, the, the reintroduction of certain elements. But, but when I was training to be a teacher in the 90s, we had to hand in planning folders that were just mm. rammed with all kinds of useless bits of paper. And, you know, I, I would get planning folder envy because there were other students whose, whose folders were twice as thick as mine. And I didn't think I was adequate enough because... I wasn't planning enough. And those, those are the days that needed to have gone. Um, but I just think something essential has been lost within that, in that 
you need to read the medium-term plan, not skim over it. The medium-term plan tells you the, the overarching journey that you're going to take the children on and what they need to know at the end of that unit of work. And then the resources underpin that, but you need to be able to push forward or, or pause and hold back. And without that forethought, without that planning, in inverted commas, that may not happen for, for enough children in the class. But, David, to, to sort of again throw back at that is the simply, you could argue, and there will be many who will argue here, that there's a couple of arguments, actually. One they would make is there isn't enough time to, to plan the way in which you're saying. And, and to actually attempt to do that could lead to real issues with, with, with sort of burnout uh, in terms of, right, I need to sort of plan every lesson in this, in, in this sort of more... Uh, creative way let's let's imagine or this more full way second issue would be is that many schools for right or wrong adopt an approach where they say we want everyone to do it this way or at the very least we want everyone to do it Mm. in a certain loose based structure and i think that would that would maybe i someone who said look we want consistency in our planning so for to give you an example more specific there might be schools out there who say look we want our structure of every lesson to be like this do now retrieval 10 minutes quiz 20 minutes uh powerpoint um sort of demoing modeling whatever 20 minute task and then maybe filtered the way through they want they want a feedback loop of some sort, right? And they might say, look, you you cannot deviate from this on a regular basis. Yes, you can deviate from it, but we want you to follow this. We and and some might have booklets where they say, look, here's a booklet, almost like a textbook for those listening who might not be aware of what I'm talking about. It's almost like a textbook that's been made by the school. And they might say, look, you've got to follow, you've got to use this booklet every lesson. You've got to read through it with the students and then complete the tasks that are in it. So I wondered what, and I'll ask Margarita first and then I'll come to David. I wondered what you thought about that, Margarita, because that happens a lot. Yeah, well, I, I was going to say, I mean, for me, um, if, if the school is actually um, too rigid, I will find it difficult. And therefore, I will actually divert from what, you know all those um, stages, but at the so same time, if someone is actually—is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> if someone is actually finding it really difficult to plan, it's actually quite good to have, especially if you're new into teaching or you haven't been teaching for long. It can be a good idea to have a sequence that you think, okay, I need to do this, I need to do that, and then also, uh, you know, it wouldn't work so much for me, but for the students who are actually, um, you know, going through in secondary school five different lessons every day, it could be actually, especially the students who got sent or any any sort of attention deficit or any special learning difficulties, it might be good that they have a structure that they recognize in every lesson just to be the devil's advocate. You know, yeah, and, and and absolutely. I mean, I would agree with that. I'm I'm not necessarily painting that picture as an as a, as a negative one at all. But what I am doing is I'm saying, and maybe this is more to David, is is what do you think about that? I mean, do you those two points I made? One is, do teachers these days really have enough time to do what you're suggesting? And part B, 
does do teachers that do that risk running against what their sort of ethos around planning is? You muted, David. Oh, there we go. Yeah, so it's 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 a really good point about um, time, Tom. Um, and and the short answer is no. There's not enough time for for most things at the moment. Um, but it's okay because we're going to have thirty-two and a half hours a week minimum from September, aren't we? So that's going to be fine. Um, <laughs> that for for primary school colleagues, they're teaching four, possibly five lessons per day, um, and so you wouldn't do what I was initially talking about for every single lesson for every single day because that's going to mount up. Um, but but equally, Tom, the point you were making about schools straightjacketing teachers with 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 systems formulas or, or um, teaching sequences. In some ways, the, the schemes that we're buying into at primary or the things that are being promoted for our broad and balanced curriculum where there's very specific subject knowledge, they're doing that by default anyway. And there are structures to the lessons, structures to the way that the resources roll out that almost straightjacket teachers in exactly the same way. And that was in my that was in my mind with the original tweet too. So, you know, I kind of came full circle on it because we were we were um, following some visitors at, 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 in my current establishment. We were very much looking at our history and geography curriculum and some very not knowledgeable history and geography leads. You'd, you'd like the history lead, Tom, I'm sure. Um, we're, we're writing the medium term plans, and they were writing it with with you know a real clear knowledge of the subject, but they weren't writing them with the lowest common denominator user, the newest user, the, the least subject experienced user in mind. And when we got through the medium term plans, we had a lot of sessions with the staff on turning those into to, to more kind of weekly plans and, and resourced plans. And, and colleagues really, really struggled. And at the, at the end point, we said, well, why, why are we you know, breaking our necks to, to try and make this work when the work's been done by far more seasoned professionals than us and you can buy them off the shelf. And if we shop around and really, really look at the resources and look at the, the schemes, we can buy ones, you know, and they had to be adaptable. They had to be flexible. They had to have all those things that you said you might do, Tom, within them. That's the time saver. That's the workload reduction. And by having that, we freed up the teachers to think, okay, this is all here in front yeah. of me, but how is that going to work for me yeah, today? Because the, the, that's the point. The, the other extreme of this, of course, is schools that have nothing there, <laughs> where you, where you're yeah. like, we want you to, you know, sort of plan everything from scratch, and we 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 don't want to see a PowerPoint, we don't want to see a textbook, we don't want to see any of that. We want everything to be original. We don't want any sort of. Uh, even even branded worksheets from teaching resource providers. We we want everything to be original. Mm -hmm. And and I sort of I tweeted about this actually the other day about this idea of booklets because someone was saying oh booklets and I said well what about textbooks you know saying teachers need to write their own booklets. Well hang on how long does that take? Like okay with Chat GPT now you could probably say write me a booklet. <laughs> it take like two minutes like twenty five seconds and it had written you a booklet. But I'm saying like that's not. I don't know, there's something about that that doesn't sit well with me because it's like there are good resources around that you can steal, bag and borrow and use effectively if you adapt them to practice, right? Um, just, I want to say, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. sorry, David, I'll come back to you in a second. You can think on your response to that. I just want to say a massive 
thank you and, and, and welcome to everybody listening in tonight. And um, We've got Chris, who's going to be joining us in a few minutes' time to discuss EHCP's Send and Inclusion. So if, you, if you're around for that chat, stick around because that's coming up in a few minutes' time. Um, uh, welcome, mm-hmm. Simon. Great admirer of Simon. A big shout out to Simon with his, his work recently around, um, around Ofsted and, and the other things he's been doing. Um, Cassie's here. Uh, and maybe Cassie, if, I don't know whether you can speak this evening, but more than welcome to if you can get involved in the discussion that's coming up. Um, Dale's here, Mr. Murray, Sarita, Alan, Claire, Sam, Miss H, Jasmine, Ricky, Marion, Mr. Stick. Hi, Mr. Stick. Okay. And and there is an emoji of you holding a stick. So good evening to you. Um, Derek, uh, <laughs> Kay Williams, Miss D, uh, Al- oh my goodness, this is a challenge. Alexadriana? Probably said that wrong. Doesn't matter. Well, it does matter, but not for this because, you know, I'm just dashing through names on the screen. Um, Tara, uh, Noel, Brian Sharp, and Andrew Lane. Good evening to everybody who is tuning in live. That was that went on for a long time, actually. Longer than I anticipated. And, and also a special shout out, of course, to John Cat, who support and partner with us on this show. And if you want to listen back to a John Cat show from last night, which I highly recommend, about writing a diary as a teacher, then you can click the pinned tweet at the top and listen back to that. It was uh, it was on last night with Chris Fowles, and it's well worth a listen if you like writing diaries, which I personally do. Um, but it was all about how you can write a diary, the ways you can write diaries and how useful they can be in, so, as a teacher, right? So it was quite interesting. Um, David, sorry, you, you, we were talking about, um, I was basically went off on one about um, uh, the ideas around lesson planning and, and you were going to say something. Yeah, yeah you, made, you made a point about um, what, why, why create booklets from yes. scratch when there are perfectly adequate textbooks That's out there. The one. Again, Tom, I, I 100% agree. Um, and... The, uh, all prescriptive systems are doomed to failure because you're not going to have everyone work within those prescriptive systems because not everyone works the same way. I think whatever you pick up to deliver, you need to filter through the prism of your own understanding of the context, your own teaching styles and your own way of delivering. And if you haven't done that pre-planning, should we, let's keep the word in, 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 in the system pre-planning, then it's not going to be greater than the sum of its parts. And right at the start of the, the hour, I said that the best lessons I've ever seen are greater than the sum of their parts. And that's in due no small part to real planning. That's not paperwork. That's forethought and you know thinking about the, the context in which you're going to teach, the misconceptions, the pupils you're going to teach. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just yeah. I mean, it's it's an interesting one. It's something that's always confused me. Is that this idea of booklets? I get it. Like people want something that they have complete ownership over, that's original, that they have full control over, and that they believe is is sort of better for them, right? I get I get all that. I get all the sort of arguments for it. But the bit I don't sort of get is what's wrong with like a good old textbook basically is what anyway margarita do you have any views on this well i think i mean again um as a teacher that i've been doing it for a while i actually admire people uh, sometimes on twitter they put amazing resources and i just love them so i actually take ownership of them yeah. i always put their names on the on the powerpoint or whatever uh and 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 I'm certain that I actually make them my own if I can, but if I don't, 
uh, it's like, you know, when you're quoting, when you're doing an essay for AQA or any exam board, uh, you have to be able to quote uh, their sources, but by all means, use all the sources uh, if they're, you know, if they're actually useful resources. So why to invent the will if the will is invented? So I'm only all in favor of people actually using resources, good resources that work for you, but you have to make them work for you, really. I, I mean, everything you said makes sense to me. Um, David, I've got a bone to pick with you now. Right, because in the other part of your tweet, <laughs> you said the art of marking has likewise been lost. Now, I'll be honest with you. If the art of marking has been lost, I'm going to get the champagne out um, because <laughs> I don't understand what your gripe is here. The art of marking has been lost. Isn't that a good thing? Um, well, it's the same it's the same principle as, as the semantics around planning, Tom, in, in that marking with endless prescriptive codes and, and coloured highlighters and so many comments per week and all of that, 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 that had to go. That had to go. And um, live marking, as in marking in the moment whilst you're working with children, that's fantastic. Um, but somewhere within that, the art of it, the craft of it, is knowing precisely which children to go and work with, which children to work with tomorrow, because let's, um, I'll use a classic. So they all think that, that uh, a, a square um, that, that isn't uh, presented in, in, in a regular 2D format and maybe sat on its corner um, is, is a diamond and not a square. And so you know there's a misconception emerging here. Um, without marking the work, and again, I've, I've just done, massive air quotes that you can't see while I'm sat in my dining room, um, that, that the art of that has gone. And so you might, I always talk about PPI and this purpose, process and impact. And the process was, we were all getting bogged down in process, the process of planning and the process of marking. And at some point the impact was lost because we were just doing the things now, we've got rid of the, the unnecessary process, but we haven't necessarily gone back to the key purposes of formative assessment, of, of kind of knowing what we want to teach the children and then finding out in, in various ways whether we taught it or not and how well that's going to stick. And I think for, again, teachers who needed to go through that process are, are tend to be the more experienced ones and they don't need that anymore. Younger teachers or less experienced teachers haven't been through the unnecessary workload to know that as it stands now, there's, there's more to it than just what the policy says. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that, that all, that all makes sense. I suppose my, my point would be is that the, uh, to use your phrase, the art of marking, you could argue took up a massive amount of time for quite a low amount of impact. Um, I understand what you're saying. The, the process of assessment, I get all of that, but marking to me is a very simplistic side of that. Um, so if there's a way to reduce that down in the way in which you do it. Um, so, so like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example of like a self-marking quiz or a, I don't know, something that mm. takes away the, work of the teacher to an extent on the tasks that don't require the teacher to get involved things like that are you, are you sort of against that sort of thing no i'm not no i'm not against that at all and, and again i'm coming through it through a very 
a, a very primary focused context. So, for example, you, you, you know, uh, in, in teaching writing, you may have some very specific objectives that you're trying to cover in the course of teaching the, the, the genre of writing that you're covering. But within that, children may well be making secretarial errors at primary. There may, their ascenders and descenders may be wrong. There may be letter reversals. There may be apostrophe S's for, for everything that ends in an S, including plurals. Those kinds of incidental things need to be picked up in the process of looking at the work. Some might call it marking um, and addressed. And I think sometimes those things continue to be an issue because they're not getting picked up because they're only focused on the success criteria that goes alongside that particular lesson. Now, if you take that out of the English context and put it into um, a history context or a science context, where there's written responses and those grammatical errors or spelling errors are, are still being made, are you going to pick those up in, in that context or are you going to focus on the subject-specific objectives? And again, that's part of the art of marking. I, I, I will know, regardless of the subject, that uh, unless they're prompted, my children need to work on ascenders and descenders for handwriting or whatever it may be. That's that, you know, that's just one example. And that's kind of where I was coming from with okay, that. Okay. Margarita, are you sort of crying tears into your cereal about the loss of the art of marking? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, I was going to say, I mean, marking is a, a, necess a necessary uh, task that we have to do. I have to say I'm not so hot on marking as I am on planning and delivering the lessons. However, there is actually a very important uh, process that happens when you're marking, which, first of all, uh, for instance, uh, once we try to do in my current job, we try to do once every half turn to mark exercise books. So to be fair, when I actually sometimes see the exercise books, of some students, the same lesson, the same teacher, you can see such an amazing differences. And you can pick up on absolutely things like, you know, um, problems with the spelling. You can actually see people who are not focusing well. They're all the misconceptions that you thought that you nail it in the lessons, they're still there in some cases. So it's really useful actually uh, I mean, in an ideal world, if we had more time, we should be doing more marking. However, uh, we don't have the time. So I do understand uh, that, for instance, also some of the marking can be done with quizzes. It can be done with computers. You can do a form. You can do all sorts of things. You can actually give them a true or false or that sort of thing. So they don't really need you for that. But there's still a very important aspect when it's actually anything that uh, requires writing, and especially subjects like uh, languages or English or history or psychology, where there's longer, longer sentences and paragraphs. I think there is a very important process mm -hmm. that it, when you're actually marking those uh, assessments that are longer assessments, you learn a lot from your students. You find out all the all the level and the different levels that the students are at and so it's really but important to actually you know it? occasionally can, can you do that by do... just reading it do you have to put pen to paper yeah. to be able to do that well what, what, what you can actually give feedback oral feedback uh, so my marking sometimes i do a, a recording so i don't actually 
uh, have to use pen and paper, I can actually do a recording and give them a verbal feedback. And that's what I was going to say next, that it's not, not only is important the marking. I think if we don't do anything with the marking, the students won't learn. So the key thing is to have time to give them feedback. And that is what really takes time that in education, we don't have time to give feedback to the students. So I occasionally take the students to the computer rooms and then I give them feedback. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I suppose the point I was making is if you were to read, third, let's say you've got 30 in a class and you were to, you know, say it's a history lesson, my subject, and I was to read 30 short answers, let's say half a page or something, exam answers. And then the next lesson, I was to start that lesson by saying, look, I've read all 30 of them. Um, here are my sort of general points about the things that you yes. have missed or the misconceptions or the things that you could change. Maybe model it mm. on the board, maybe pick one, type it out and say, look, here's what I would do different. Or here's a model answer. Here's one that I prepared earlier, that sort yes. of thing. And then the students do their own corrections on, on what yes. they've done. Yeah, that, yeah. that to me isn't marking because I haven't put pens. I haven't done any marking in that process. Okay, that... that... That to me is marking, Tom. That is the art of marking. You might you might want to call it assessment. You might want to call it assessment for yeah, feedback. I mean, I think whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I think it's feedback, and I think it's it's assessment. But I don't think it's marking. To me, marking is like the action of putting pen to paper. Yeah. yeah so you, it's it's assessment feedback. Yes, and they're yeah, they're but... actually assessing themselves. Uh, they're marking themselves basically. You can give them the the mark scheme and they are marking themselves as well and then give them some generic assess a uh, generic feedback as well david yeah yeah absolutely no um at some point though maybe you've got a better memory than me now tom because uh, you're a younger man <laughs> but um at some point i would have to put pen to paper to make some notes about mm. the model mm. i'm going to teach yeah. the group of kids who, who fell into that misconception bracket now for me that's the art of marking but when we when we talk in reductionist terms about workload reduction and people still have these simplistic ideas about about the semantics of planning and marking and what they equate to, something gets lost in translation, in my opinion, which was the original tweet. Well, listen, David, it's been an incredibly interesting discussion and we could literally probably go on all night with this. Um, <laughs> we nearly did. We nearly did. It's incredibly engaging. And now, listen, I want to say a massive thanks, Margarita and David. And if you want to stick around, then fantastic, because we're now going to sort of move topics um, and feel free to absolutely stay as speakers and, and maybe just, just come in with your views as we go along. Because what we're going to be looking at next is, is some of the opinions that have been expressed around EHCPs. Um, yeah, yeah around send and around uh, provision and inclusion that's where we're moving next and i've got chris joining me for this um chris we'll just check you can hear me okay uh yeah good evening can you hear me good evening can hear you can hear you loud and clear Brilliant. um now i'm just going to sort of paint a picture as to where this sort of topic um came into came into my sort of thought process it was a couple of things um the first one was a show and the sort of reaction to that show, which was um, my show from last Monday, 
um, where I had special guests, including Barry Smith. And one of the topics that we were discussing was, well, actually, the, the whole show started off on has behavior got worse over the last five years? But during that conversation, um, some of the uh, commentary then dwelt into, well, well, basically, um, Barry shared his opinions on on um, various different different matters. One of the things that he said, which led to a lot of controversy online and a lot of people reacted to it, was, um, uh, do you ever read an EHCP and think that's useful? I don't. As their teacher, you will know that child better than anyone giving a diagnosis. Now, this got a lot of sort of reaction online um, from lots of different people. Um, now, Chris, I'm not at all suggesting that your thread was in direct response to that, because I know there was another thread that was sort of not exactly that, but was was sort of sharing uh, some of those views. In fact, I'll read out uh, just a little bit from that thread, um, just so we, just so people who are listening are aware of what we're talking about, because you might not even be on Twitter. I know we've got podcast listeners in Iran and India, so I very much doubt they're going to be following um, UK Edu Twitter. Um, but the comments started off with, do teachers need to make adjustments in their lessons to meet the multiple different needs of children in their classroom? I say no. Um, this particular thread um, then went on to talk about um, how... Well, well, I would we call it misconception? This this person's perceived misconceptions of uh, what reasonable adjustments mean, right? Basically, um, now I'm sure Nathan, if he's admin, in, can pin that tweet so people can sort of get an idea of, of the sort of things that we are discussing um, tonight. But I know that Chris, uh, who's joining me now. Uh, did his own thread um, on Twitter. Now, I'm not necessarily saying, Chris, that this was in response to anything I've just read. It, it, it may not have been, but I'll just read out your sort of um, your a bit of your thread. You, yep. you, sa you said, um, I know better than an expert, in inverted commas, is personally one of the most damaging trains of thought in teaching. Uh, 15 years ago, my daughter was born with cerebral palsy. There was no EHCP mm -hmm. given to us as parents. We had to learn about cerebral palsy the hard way. Take, for example, swimming. We took our daughter to the local swimming pool, unknown to us um, in how uncomfortable it would make her feel. And then you went on to talk about the things that you learned um, over a 15-year period. Um, one of the things that I wanted to sort of share with people before we get into this conversation is what an EHCP is, in case people don't know. So EHCP stands for Education, Health and Care Plan. It's a legal document for an individual child or young, young person aged one to 25 years with special educational needs and disabilities, otherwise known as SEND. Um, which sets out a description of their educational, health and social care needs and the provision that must be implemented by, I, I, I'm, other experts can clarify this, but by schools, by wider provision in order to help them. So that's what an EHCP is. To get an EHCP, you have to apply for one. Um, and requests for an EHCP can be made by parents, by schools, by social workers, by paediatricians, or by any interested parties. A local authority can accept or reject any application uh, for an EHCP. Uh, the sort of things that a, a local authority might reject an EHCP on are a lack of diagnosis on the special educational needs of the individual, 
uh, a lack of report from an educational psychologist, uh, the child not being uh, deemed to be far enough uh, behind their fellow students, uh, and, and so on. There's lots of different reasons why a local authority might reject an EHCP. If it's accepted uh, by the LA, then it becomes part of a plan for that student, which um, a support plan, if you like, that that needs to be legally fulfilled and followed by teachers who would then make adjustments or make suitable provision for that child in their classroom. They'd be given a copy of the EHCP and they would use that to um, impact and inform their planning and their work. Um, an example for me personally, I currently work part-time in a special school for deaf children. So there are uh, there, there is a lot of um, uh, documentation and a lot of information that informs that that must inform my my planning and my teaching in that context. Um, so, it, it, you know, that's that, I hope that's given a bit of a summary. And Chris, you'll be far more of an expert on this than me. But I've just <laughs> tried to paint a bit of a picture of what an EHCP is. Um, yeah. But I wondered if you can tell me your story and where you were coming from with your sort of Twitter thread. Yeah, I mean, it, all those discussions that you talked about were part of um, the ongoing thought process. So I saw all this stuff over the weekend. And for me, I saw some people attacking. And, you know, and, and for me, I think the problem is, is when we deal with difficult things like this, it's too easy to attack. And I think what I wanted to do, and obviously thank you for inviting me tonight, is to actually sort of put a different opinion and actually explore the issue a little bit further. Um, so the experience that I've had is obviously, as I said in my tweet, you know, that 15 years ago we had uh, two daughters born, one of them with cerebral palsy and one without. And so at the time of uh, discovering, it was the year, a year into um, my daughter. Um, and so we noticed that she wasn't um, crawling properly. And so, um, so we went to the doctors and the kind of um, input that we got was just simply um, she's got cerebral palsy. That's it. So there was no aftercare, no, no sort of kind of uh, support plan, no understanding. And so, that for us as a parent of a child with SEND, that was the start of the journey of the experience that we've had as parents. Now, as a, as a teacher, I, I go across two worlds. You know, I'm there as a parent of a child with SEND, but also I'm a teacher. So I can see both sides of the issue. But, you know, further down the line, when you look at that, there's several things that, you know, I wasn't an expert and I still am not an expert on cerebral palsy, even though I've had 15 years of kind of living um, under the kind of the bubble of uh, cerebral palsy. And we're still learning to this day. And that's with 15 years of experience. And there are still things today that I'm like, oh, Right, I didn't realise, I didn't see how that impacts. And I think the problem that worries me is that, you know, that it's a really, really important document. It's a way for parents to make it very, very clear of what's the best way to help their child, but also experts and specialists. And, and so, and I think the problem is when we have a look at students, 
there are often, you know, when you look at the personality types of students, there's often two types. You know, there's two personalities in a child. There's, there's the personality that they show in the classroom and in school, but also there's the personality that they're, that's at home. And sometimes those two personalities are conflicting. And often when you, and I'm not saying this is every SEND child, but you generally see lots of lovely, nice SEND children that don't make a fuss, that they're lovely, they get on and they do what they do. And they don't talk about these things. They don't raise the issue. They don't say, oh, sir, I've got cerebral palsy. This is, you need to do this or you need to do that. And so that document is actually there to give that child a voice and to help that child. Now, obviously, I can talk, I'm talking from uh, a physical disability. And, you know, when we're talking about neurodiversity as well, you know, we are talking about students who can't always articulate their emotions, um, their thought processes. And so for me, it's a little bit alarming when we've got people who, from their perspective, and I think this is, a, this is the point I was trying to get at, is that it's so easy for me as a, as a teacher to see everything from my perspective. So, you know, and I, the examples I gave um, was that, you know, I talked about the swimming. You know, for me, it's never been an issue about how going into a, a freezing cold swimming pool. It's never been an issue. And we didn't think it'd be an issue until my daughter was in there. And then somebody said, you do realise that when she's in the swimming pool and it's cold, it, it's quite painful and those muscles hurt. And so we went with good intentions, you know, go swimming, really, you know, that's important. But then to discover that, and actually it kind of sort of upset us, you know, but we were sort of kind of, we didn't know, you know, nobody talks about these things. And I think there are a lot of things. I mean, I think, you know, last week I had an incident with my daughter. One of my daughters uh, has glasses, and so her glasses were broken. And being the typical dad, I said, come on, get on with it, you know, just go to lessons. And, and they'd been cracked, and they'd smashed, and, a little, and so she couldn't really use them. So being the typical dad, I was like, go on, get on with it, you know, you can get on with lessons, go on. And then she was like, no, I cannot see. And, and that was because I was just seeing everything from my perspective. And I think it's a real, real big worry for me if we've got professionals that aren't actually empathising with the child, thinking with the child in mind, or even thinking what the experience might be like for that child. No, I'm not suggesting that the people that have mentioned stuff on Twitter, uh, you know, are totally devoid of empathy. But I just think it, it's, it's worrying for me if so they can be so blasé about these sorts of things. One of, one of the things I sort of wanted to, because everything you've said there makes absolute sense and you, you've put it very eloquently, there are those out there who argue that they're... So, so I'll give you, give you an example. I'll give you a specific example. Um, and uh, it's an example from uh, Sir Ken Robinson. Um who obviously has sadly passed away, but Sir Ken Robinson did a very, very famous video. And in that video, he showed... Now, I've forgotten the... Because I haven't watched this video for yonks, but basically in the video, he showed that uh, a diagnosis of ADHD went up uh, across the United States. So from... I think it was from left to right or right to left. I can't even remember. But basically, he showed like a, how, it, how it went up across the united states mm -hmm. it was something like that right and he used this to suggest that 
I mean, his argument, which I completely disagree with, by the way, on a personal level, was that um, teaching or teachers uh, were not being creative enough or, or that the education system wasn't wasn't sort of facilitating that enough. So therefore, um, more students were then uh, turning to a diagnosis or being diagnosed with ADHD. It was along those lines to completely paraphrase and probably do it very badly. But I'm just trying to put across here what some people will say is that there is... Um, and there's, there was a report in it, I think in it was either the Times or one of those about an increase in in diagnosis. There are many who would say they're concerned about that. What would you say to them? I think um, there are there are several strands to that. The, the first yeah. instance is really is that we're just getting better at recognising um people with different um, special needs i think that is one element we are better certainly i certainly know from my experience of teaching you know it's more talked about some you know some cases more you know it's more discussed it's it, you know i remember you know there was one meeting for cpd on special needs and now we have regular meetings about it so i think there's that element i do think there is um you know that people are kind of quite probably Sorry, I'm just just thinking. Just yeah, thinking no, back from okay. my referring about my own past. Um, people were quite hesitant to sort of uh, pursue for a diagnosis for special needs in in my when yeah. I was growing up, and so I think there is a kind of understanding because you know a parent does want their best for their child you know when they if they feel there is an issue and they want to explore it you know my wife is also training to be a senko at the moment so you know we do talk about these things uh 24 7 really about these things but i do think there is a lot more understanding than there was you know 20 30 years ago so i would expect to see and and i think sometimes we paint um easy brushes, you know, sweeping brush over things to think, well, it's clearly a lack of uh, teaching skills and in the classroom. I think actually, you know, there are, society is changing, society is evolving all the time. And I think there are a number of different factors in there. And I think it's unfair to just put it down to teaching in the classroom. Yeah, I mean, I certainly was just putting across there what some of the views out there are. Um, and I think somebody, this was in the show last Monday, and, and by the way, the topic of that show wasn't even this, it just went <laughs> on to that. And I don't know if you've listened to it, but it sort of went on to that. And some of the comments that were actually made during the show were, you know, there were some quite strong views expressed that, you know, that there are massive issues in sort of diagnosis. There's, I think somebody said something like the money train or something, or, you know, the money in it, or, the, you know, there were comments around finance, all this sort of stuff, pharmaceutical companies, you know, all this, all this other stuff around. Well, like, yeah, I mean, I can see that. But also you talk to Senkos in school, you know, who are trying to get that money for the student and trying to get the TA and the support um, you know, you ask them, you know, the people who are on the ground trying to help these students and to support these students and trying to, you know, and liaise with parents and try and get the best for their for their child. You know, I think sometimes we forget that actually, you know, parents of children with special needs, you know, I give my example, not because I want, you know, to give a sub story, but it also because I think it's important to understand that, you know, it is a battle. 
it is a battle with having a child with special needs at every single stage. And you are having to fight um, for your child a lot of the time. And sometimes, you know, I can be combative when it comes to things because you sometimes it's the frustration of something so simple, you know, that all it is is one thing. Now, I think primary school, I have to say, are, you know, are really, really good with the SEND issues because I think that what they've got is that um, consistency that continuous teacher all the time that builds that relationship up. Now, that may be something where kind of Barry Smith is alluding to this idea that, you know, know your child. I think the problem that we have in secondary school is the fact that students are moving constantly all the time to different people, you know. And so when you've got one student and they could have six, seven, eight, nine different teachers and this is where that communication disappears, doesn't it? And so you're expecting a number of adults to make sure they've got that piece of information and they're remembering it every single lesson and they're using that thought process and that, that special process that's the advice that they've been given every single lesson. So I think that is where the problem comes in. And I think that's possibly, you know, I didn't hear the full conversation with Barry, but mm. I think that's where he could be alluding to is the problem, you know, that problem of how that communication is, you know, is passed on. You know, I certainly know from a primary school level that, you know, you know that that is a constant thought at the back of your mind. When you're in secondary school, you're spinning plates. However, the problem is, is that, you know, this is that one thing that is going to help that child. You know, it could be the positioning where they are. It could be, you know, just tracking. You know, what I find quite interesting is we've got a big talk about metacognition. And if you have a look at a lot of the metacognition processes, you know, when we look at SEND, quite a lot of them fit into these sorts of things. And so on one hand, you know, we're trying to be, you know, think about metacognition. But actually, you know, it is often in the HCPs that it relates to metacognition and the processes to help the cognitive learning in the lesson. I'm conscious of talking. I could talk forever. No, no, no. It's really interesting. Like, I'm really interested. And it, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to sort of learn and, and just to talk more about it. Um, I, I wanted to sort of, because one of the things that was brought up there, and I've seen this said online as well in various different forums and heard it said in various different forums, is this idea of like, I guess the argument that some people put forward, and I'm certainly not saying I agree with this argument, the argument that, that is sometimes put forward is that, um, you know, to put it in inverted commas, we're very quick to want to put a label on on students to explain um, uh, issues or behaviours or whatever, rather than... Um, you know, this is what someone might say, I don't know, rather than uh, challenging or sort of just 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 sort of going with a more conventional approach to it. But I, you know, there are those who would respond to that by saying, no, that is just ignoring the needs of individual students. That That is just not accepting the way things are. But I, but then they would might counter that a person might counter that by saying, yes, but by giving by being. I don't know, focused on on um, asserting labels, we then 
forget to treat each child uh, as they as they present. Do you see what I mean? That's I've, yeah. I've really I've paraphrased an argument <laughs> that two people might have there in an incredibly curt way, but yeah. I'm just trying to put across the sort of debate debates that I've seen people have. I, I think I think the problem there is the oversimplification with labels. You know, a, a label is just part of the jigsaw. You know, whether it's dyslexia, whether it's autism, that is only part of the jigsaw for that child. And so, and I kind of talk about this in term, terms of like English teaching, you know, that it's actually, it's the skills and it's the knowledge and it's the experience, you know, and I think, the more you understand a child, the more you understand how that sort of uh, that that special need is part of them and, and how that mm. links in. Because I just think, yeah. you know, all of us are on the spectrum for a number of different things. You know, it is a spectrum. And I think, mm. you know, the more I teach, the more I understand that, you know, no two students are very alike with the same label. You know, I have to be really careful about what I say, but, you know, I, I can deal with one student who um, maybe is autistic on one level, but then they manifest in a different kind of student, a different student completely. You know, no two students are no. the same. You know, and, and I certainly, and I, again, I'll talk about my lived-in experience because I think it's really important to talk about lived-in experiences is that, there are a number of different types of um, form of cerebral palsy. And, and so we, we've got a diplegic form. So it, it affects the legs, but it can affect the arms occasionally. So it does, and that's quite different because it doesn't affect the speech, but for some cerebral palsy uh, children, it affects speech. And so those different elements affect how learning's going on, affect how they experience things. And I think the problem is, is that, OK, we live in a fast world where we want things quick. We want things fast. And, you know, and it'd be nice to just label. And I think the problem and we know this is the stereotyping and, and the conscious bias that goes along with these things. You know, a dyslexic student uh, can be so different to another. And I think the problem is, is that we want to make things easier um, so we can deal with things easily. And I think sometimes, you know, going back to kind of the marking and the talking, sometimes it just takes that time to understand that child and understand that situation. And the problem comes from us kind of wanting a simple kind of way of looking at it. You know, oh, this person has got dyslexia, so I need to do this and I do that. There may be common strengths. There may be. What my experience is, and again, it's very limited because, you know, I'm not Senko, but from teaching is you find that, you know, there is a child attached to this label and this child might act differently to another. And I think the problem that we have, it can be labels, but also think about our relationship with those labels and how we use those within the classroom and within teaching. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, as I say, it's sort of, it's a really difficult topic to sort of talk about and to, you know, I, I, I have no sort of expert experience on this. So it's very difficult for me to, to sort of articulate, but I'm going just on the things that I see 
other people say or experts say about it and sort of trying to to learn and, and gain more knowledge that way one thing that i one thing i i would say is that i do you know the the sort of arguments around and and this this is not i don't see this as an argument against um ehcps or 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 send diagnosis or anything else but when people say we should treat um we should treat is maybe the wrong word but we should we should not fundamentally it comes to this like we should not judge anybody we should we should treat every child as sort of we shouldn't make any prejudgments about about children Yes, we should be aware. This is my opinion, by the way, just putting it out here. We should be aware of information about them. That includes the EHCPs. And, and we should be uh, very much following whatever guidance is, is there because this is my personal opinion, not the opinion of Teachers Talk Radio. Um, we, that, that is, that has, that, they have gone through a process to get that EHCP. So for me, I trust that process. And I personally would would bring that into my teaching. However, in a general sense, I would like to think that I would never I would never prejudge a child in terms of their their ability or their capacity or their uh, or, or, or whatever it is based on the, the label that has often rightly been been given to them. Does that make any sense whatsoever? Because it might not have. I was just like throwing out thoughts. Yeah, I, I think I think the issue is, and I think it is quite an emotive topic. So when we're talking about SEN, I think there's sort of, and, and you kind of alluded to it sort of with previous comments that you've said about it, is that there tends to be a binary kind of, kind of viewpoint of how we view um, SEN students. There's either the, and we use inverted commas, this kind of like tiny Tim picture where we've got to feel sorry for him because, you know, yes. th- that's yes. the kind of thing. Or the other end, this is, which is kind of the mass media production, this idea that, you know, that somehow they're cheating the system. And, and, and mm-hmm. this is the problem that we kind of have is that we forget, um, you know, I'm not saying we forget, but society forgets that these are people. These are people yes. first. Yes. And I think the problem that we've got is, you know, that when we have people saying, well, you don't need that HAP, that's forgetting an important part of that child and that child's mm-hmm. need. And you know what? You know, the experience that is out there, and, and I can talk about this from a personal experience, of how hard it is, you know, I'm the one that pushes the wheelchair outside and the experience we get you know outside of how the wider society treats people you know and and you see it in in the media and you think well i don't think that really happens you know i don't think people look it does it it does and you know and, and sometimes it's quite unpleasant and and i think it's because of those two ideas that society tells us that we should either feel pity or we should feel like somebody's trying to drain money from the, you know, from the government sort of thing. And, and what's happening as a society is we're kind of forgetting people. All right. And, and I think that this is the problem that got me quite upset last night was that, you know, they were forgetting 
that is this is people we're talking about and you know when you wouldn't on other characteristics you wouldn't kind of neglect people on those sorts of things and so i think this is the problem that we've got it's got to challenge these ideas you know i've i've talked about this before a long time ago about um there was an instance that i had with my daughter over the pen license um and it was quite interesting i've still not had anybody come back to me um and and the experience was that we had with the pen license was that you know um it was quite um demeaning is that you know with cerebral palsy you'll find motor skills sometimes aren't, aren't quite refined and so my daughter didn't get um, her pen license um, when her identical twin sister did. And, and, and I said that sort of the issue that that gave was kind of almost like a metaphorical dunce hat because, you know, the pen license is, is seen as this kind of epitome of doing really, really well. And yet here, through no fault of her own, but purely because of her physical uh, ability, didn't achieve the pen license and so I think it's understanding the person and I think you know there is there's people are complex and I think we can't simplify situations and I think what I fear is this whole sort of oversimplification of issues and just thinking well it's just we don't need to deal with this I know better and and what my point last night was really about is like you know I've got 15 years of experience and I don't know better and I live with it day in, day out. So, and I just think I haven't got that confidence to say I'm an expert on dyslexia. I will, you know, I will work and I will find out. And, and, and and it's a relationship, you know, I need parents to tell me if things don't work or if there's something I've done. I think I'm a teacher and I'm learning. I'm still learning to this day. And I think it's about course correction and understanding, you know, what it is that helps a child. Yeah. Um, Cassie is here. Cassie is, what should I describe her as? Executive special educational needs. Well, she told me on Saturday <laughs> and I can't remember the title. Cassie, what are you? Oh, what? I didn't know where you're going to go with that. What is she? i I don't even know what am i um i'm a senko at heart i've always been a senko i'm an inclusion lead for a trust of 10 schools that's the one um (laughs) you always tell me i'm a head teacher and i think i was once but i haven't been for a while um i agree with everything you've just said actually um i'm probably kind of come at, at it at a different angle i've got so much to say but i've only got five percent battery so i'll try and start <laughs> yeah really, really we'll get on with it then go on um i think we've got to remember exactly what was just said that you know we're putting the child at the, the center of this and we have to put our egos to one side sometimes and think actually Let's read the paperwork around these children because EHCPs are not these kind of made up things that are shoved under a door. Mm. Um, they are co-created with parents and educators and psychologists and speech and language therapists and occupational therapists, depending on what the need is. These aren't just, you know, these are thought through. Now, I have to be honest with you, I've read some terrible EHCPs with really badly worded outcomes that Mm -hmm. sometimes you think that's not accurate. 
but when you see something like that you challenge it you go back you have an annual review with the senko and the parents and all of the other professionals around the table and you say actually i do work with this child every day particularly mm. in primary schools and you know these are the things that they're making progress in and these are the areas that they're not so you create those smaller targets cassie can i ask you a question just before yeah, you do course. the next bit yeah. Have you ever thought, have you ever come, because you, you've got extensive experience there. Is there mm-hmm. ever a point where you go, okay, this child has got an EHCP mm-hmm. and I as a professional, perhaps mm-hmm. in collaboration with other professionals that you work with, actually question the fundamentals of the EHCP? As in, oh, oh, absolutely. absolutely. We, don't, we don't believe, we don't believe whether, you know, from a professional perspective, you've worked with the child for a while. We yeah. don't believe this child should have an EHCP. Yeah, of course. Of course. You work with children who might have an EHCP. You know, what we hope is that a child is identified really as early as possible as having an educational or healthcare need. And what you hope is that you get the professionals around the table who say, okay, we're going to observe the child, we're going to assess where they are, we're going to make referrals, we're going to get everything that that child needs from the best professionals that we can find and give the best targets and outcomes. And if those children reach those, make that progress and reach those outcomes, the idea is that that EHCP is no longer needed. Mm. So, yes. But it is a legal statutory document (laughs) and it would be neglectful for anyone to say, don't read it or I know better. Because you if you recognise that some of those targets or outcomes are not appropriate for that child, that's that's your professionalism to have a voice and say, this isn't working or I need some more support at how we reach that outcome. And that, that's the powerful bit. You know, you are a professional, you are a teacher, you know, it's in your the stand, teaching standards that you, you, that's part of your job. Can now, I just, sorry to yeah. interrupt, no, sorry. No, no, I I'm just, sorry, I can rant. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to be a little bit pedantic to Tom because, you know, look at the, I know you're playing devil's advocate, but, you know, your, your question was there. You know, do you think that it's deserved? You know, and again, it, it, it not links... deserved. I didn't use that. I didn't. Well, I not didn't quite deserved, but this idea. Yeah, of, I don't think I used the word deserved, but I said, I said, my my point was to Cassie was, is there a point where you've worked with a child for a while where you question whether the EHCP is accurate? Yeah. Okay. With it, but it still has a similar sort of tone, yeah. doesn't it? Really, yeah. it still has a some similar tone. You know, the whether you know somebody is deserving or not deserving, you know, and and I think that is a wider issue that we have in society, you know, that I think it should be in the hands of the professionals to make the decisions. And that's where you rely on the Senko. And I know, and rightly, as Cassie said, you know, you would hope that students would move out of that, you know, that's a sign of the right step in the right direction. I I just think it's, it's so easy from our perspective to decide whether a child is from our narrow Mm, perspective mm. whether they're deserving you know i'm not you know i might might see that child for four lessons a week you know am i really knowledgeable enough to understand whether that 
you know that the yeah. ECP well, is no. the right no, thing. I mean, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not at all. I think the... Tom meant appropriate rather yeah. than deserving. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And and I also want to want to clarify as well in my question is that I would never suggest that a teacher or a professional should not follow an EHCP regardless of what their what their personal views or whatever were. It, it, I I agree with you, Chris, in that those to a certain extent are irrelevant in this sort of thing you know because i think what what often happens is it becomes a motive you know we we are in this situation you know they're deserving are you know really really you know and i think sometimes one of the hardest battles that i found around the whole uh send issue having a daughter with send is this whole sort of you know bleeding heart situation bless will be really nice to her but will not push her, you know, and, and that's the other element in there. In well, there I think itself. that's the, I, I think that's where a lot of the sort of, um, a lot of, some of the, some of the comments I've seen made seem to come from that place of frustration mm. from the people making those comments, but they, but they, yeah. But I mean, whether that, whether we can conflate that with, with, the EHCP, I just think is yeah, we can't really. Um, mm. Cassie, do you have anything to say based on what Chris has just said? Um, only between the deserving and the appropriateness, I think just clarity over that. That I think that um, I think it's about whether an EHCP is appropriate um, at the point that you know they've they've made progress and and actually the, they've they've reached their outcomes and actually that that could be then moved down to you know mainstream core standards and because um... actually the word the word like and i i this is just me listening chris that i i don't i wouldn't necessarily use the word deserving because surely that implies that you've had to that you need to earn an ehcp whereas for me it's, must... just a, it's just <laughs> yeah. a matter of fact if you know what i mean it's like you, it's the you combative element of me. <laughs> it's the <laughs> combative element. I told you there it is. The the send parent. It is fighting. You know that that fight. It's still yeah. there. You know. It, no, it's... but I understand. Though I get it. I get what you're saying. But just and and this is me with my like. I don't have children, and I don't have. I've never worked. Well, this is the the, the school I'm in now is the first special school context I've worked in. And yes, I've worked in lots of fully inclusive schools, but I'm by no means an expert on this. But I guess, yeah, I guess it's interesting that I, like, sometimes I, I, I wouldn't see the word deserving as, as a word that I would ever use, if that makes sense, around and that. that's it would part be... of the problem, Tom, that parents have to fight to get yes. the support that they need. And yes. an EHCP becomes this safety net where they know, well, <laughs> you'd hope that they would know that what their child needs because they have a right to education they are going to get because they have an EHCP and that's why you find I you know I'm talking from the primary sector that when you get into year five and six suddenly EHCP requests from parents go up because they have this panic well they're going to secondary we know that they're not going to get the same small kind of intimate setting that a primary offers in many schools and actually now we're having a bit of a worry that their needs aren't going to be met because they don't have the safety net of an EHCP. And that's why it becomes very combative because, and I, I imagine that you've had the experience that you've had to 
almost fight to get what your child needs and it definitely should not be that landscape yeah you've got a child that's got significant and complex needs this is what they deserve and they deserve the funding and they deserve the support so that they have the right to education like every other child Mm, um but there is i'm gonna say quality first teaching (laughs) and actually (laughs) (laughs) good teachers are good teachers for all children and I think that I'll always say, get those fundamentals right in your schools, get the yes. culture right, be inclusive, make sure you're child centred, make sure that you think about the environment that those te- those children are being taught in. Get those things right, because when you get a child that has an EHCP or has a personalised plan or individual learning plan, you it's easier. You're not, you know, you've got the right behavior you've got the right curriculum you've got everything in place so that you know and and this is school leaders as well they need to look at the workload that they're putting on their teachers because they remove all of the unnecessary workload and then those teachers don't feel this anxiety or this pressure to then think oh no and now I've got three children with the HCPs in my class and I'm not going to be able to do this 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 and this so it's it's there are so many compounding issues I mean, I would, I would argue, and I welcome Chris and Cassie your thoughts on this. But I would, you could argue, and I would actually argue that really good teaching is 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 inclusive, like because to be really good, it it has to be inclusive. Does that does that make any sense? It doesn't, yeah. does it? <laughs> yeah, but I, I also think that you know. Uh, good teaching actually understands the complexity of of the issues you know and 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 actually is thoughtful and aware of the students with those things and i think it's those small little micro adaptions that they make you know that clarity and that message that repetition that checking that a student has picked up um you know what they what the key thread of the lesson is you know making sure going back to that student i think you know yes it is it is good teaching but also it's a lot more nuanced as well and i think that comes with understanding the complexity and i think that comes with knowledge and experience of the child and children per se cassie and anything on that teaching good teaching being naturally inclusive yeah i i totally agree i think that I think you're if you're a good teacher, you're able to assess as you go. You're able to identify where there are gaps in knowledge. You are able to identify where children are responding in a better way than they had previously. And you build on that. And that's you build on that through relationships and experience. I think. um, I think it's that awareness. I I think when, when I see a good teacher teach, they are aware everything that's happening around them um i think you have to be incredibly skillful and knowledgeable to be able to teach a class with diverse needs um and i just think that sometimes that one size fits all approach just it's just not skillful enough so i think that the more experienced you become as a teacher the more skillful you are at being able to adapt to but just just the class just to counter that though or not counter it but to throw something in there is the way our education system is obviously built with 30 
35 students in a classroom sometimes is that is that more personalized approach possible in the context of what we do in mainstream anyway i think you've got a really good point and i think we're we're heading into a bit of a landscape which could be quite it's more difficult because we're getting more complex needs in mainstream schools that doesn't mean that we can't do it but it means that we have to we do have to look at the paperwork that these children that are attached to these children because actually i think sometimes we massively overcomplicate it because there are those legal responsibilities around it but if you're getting and i'll, I'll just keep banging on about quality first teaching i know people hate the phrase and, and i do when i when i talk at research ed's and I talk about quality first teaching, about the, the history of where it comes from. And I'm going to say, but first quality teaching is the first step, because that's the bit. If you get it right, then everything else you can then adapt and change and meet specific and individual needs in your classroom. I think if you had children, 30 children, and you didn't have that right, that's where things go wrong. Chris, I wonder whether you want to sort of add anything in there or, or whether maybe we should ask David. David, I don't know if you're still there, but whether David or, or we've got uh, Margarita, I think that's Chloe, although I can't remember from the profile what their name is. But David, do you want to add anything in here? Um, yeah, I've, I've been really um, engrossed in the entire conversation. Both Chris and Cassie make some excellent points. I think um, EHCPs are extremely hard won. Um, there are more children that need them that, than, than have them in my school at the moment. Um, so I wouldn't for a minute put, put any kind of expectation other than to understand the context and the contents of the AACP on my teachers. Um, it stands for Education and Healthcare Plan, and there's a health element to that. Um, and we've been talking very much on the education end um, of, of the Education Healthcare Plan. And I think our healthcare partners and professionals uh, need to do a lot more work alongside us. I don't know if, if uh, Cassie or Chris would agree with that. I totally agree. Totally agree, yeah. Um, and then just, just a, a, a small but important point on pen licences. I really don't like them, um, but I have them in my, I have them in my current Why establishment. Why did someone mention pen licences? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but the point that Chris made in his specific context isn't the only instance that I've come across of, of something like that. And, and, you know, it's a bit like attendance awards for children with EHCPs. They're never going to have 100% attendance. Um, and, and, and you just have to be really careful, really nuanced. And then, you know, w without trying to just dovetail back to my, my, my slot of in, earlier in the show, what Cassie was saying around quality first teaching, and it goes back to what Margarita was saying about um, making adjustments for key pupils and, and being adaptive rather than just differentiating and putting on a glass ceiling. Um, that's the important bit. And, and that goes, you know, there has to be an element of, in inverted commas, planning there. And that means planning in your head, if nowhere else, for the children that you have that robust understanding of. And I did add, add a comment, where, and, and we're going through that at the moment as we get towards SATs and, and transition time. There is this almost um, inherent sense amongst the, the, the parent community that once they leave the safety of primary, and mine's a three-form entry, so it's not small, um, to go to secondary, that something 
something fundamental might be lost in the number of teachers they're going to have. And so that the quality of communication that goes around that, that's the real key. What would you, uh, Chris, sorry, were you going to say something there on, on the back of that? No, no, no. All right, I was, I was just going to say, what would you all say to those who sort of come out and say, we are, because I've, I've seen this, I've seen people say this online and, and, and whatever, who say, we are, we are, you know, some people would use the phrase mollycoddling. Some people would, would use phrases like, we are uh, stopping children from growing resilient or being more resilient or facing the challenges that they'll have to face after they're 18 years old, that sort of stuff. What would you say to those sort of commentaries? Because they are out there. No one would say anything. I, I, I... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking how I'd respond to that, to be honest. Well, I've seen, I've seen commentary like that. Crikey. Um, uh, you know, um, it's out there. Um, there are people who, who, who believe that, who believe that there is overdiagnosis, that there is, you know, I've seen people say that. I've seen people um, making comments about resilience and all the rest of it. Um, Cassie? <laughs> so I, knew, I knew you'd pick on me. Um... <laughs> I think that they'd say that about primary generally, don't they? They're going to say something like that. They're just talking about primary, aren't they? Oh, we're too, <laughs> we're too nice know. at primary. We're too soft. And um, I guess my argument would be our focus is on early intervention. And if we get it right then, and that might seem, you know, having extra adults to support or um, – but. I, I would very strongly argue that that doesn't mean lower expectations and that doesn't mm -hmm. mean giving children an easy ride. Um, children like challenge and failure isn't unkind. And, you know, we, mm. we teach children about resilience and, yeah. you know, the only way that we can move children forward is to work out where they're falling down. Um, so why wouldn't we be setting children up in, you know, and making sure that they're working alongside their peers and we're scaffolding but that scaffolding is removed to the further up they go of the further they go up the school um, so that they in readiness for transition. But we do that with all of our children in primary. Um, so I would I would disagree strongly. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I mean, I wasn't I expecting you think... to agree, Cassie, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. We're too nice. Um, but no, I think I think we have incredibly high expectations particularly with our pupils with special educational needs and, and EHCPs um, and you know we can see that from the progress that we met that they make the difficulty is that you know children are assessed in linear boxes of reading writing and maths and you've got these children overcoming massive challenges and making huge amounts of progress from from the minute they start in primary school and we've got no way of really celebrating that. And that, I think that's a real shame. Um, Scott, I know you've joined. Do you, do you have a view on any of this? Yeah, I just had a very a quick one to chip in, really. It's just, it's listened to, it's really, really interesting. And I know lately there's, there's been this sort of negative view of SEND being um, overdiagnosed and bits and pieces being um, shared. But I think... One of the arguments that is sort of being passed around is this idea of, well, some of these students aren't send or uh, because it's bad, they're just badly behaved. 
and it's not very sending it and it's, it's behavior and i don't i actually think that when people are saying that they don't understand that the vast majority of the time it's to do with the fact that senders probably significantly actually underdiagnosed so where they're saying well the students send and they've got poor behavior a lot of that has actually come from the fact that that student's not been supported for a very, very long time. And as a coping mechanism, they've taken on, taken on different types of behaviour as a, a masking that they're really struggling. They don't want to seem different to the peers. So where we're saying, well, actually, they've been diagnosed with SEND and they're, they're badly behaved and they're not really SEND, it's just bad behaviour. Actually, I think it's more the fact that because we are so late in diagnosing some of these students, they've taken on some behaviours as a coping mechanism. And then we're saying, well, actually we're not supporting their needs, that's then leading to masking behaviours. I think we need to sort of flip the narrative on this and not look at the behaviour side as they've been identified as SEND, um, but it's the behaviour that's causing that problem, they're not actually SEND. It's actually they've not been identified as SEND early enough, they're not getting the support they need. That has then resulted in these behaviours then developing. Um, and it's very difficult once a student has gone into that masking behaviour and it's very, very difficult to get them out. I think one of the things we see in secondary is if a student gets identified too late on, whether that's um, through moving schools or anything like that, it's very, very difficult to take away that stigma uh, and that reliance on a behaviour as a crutch. I think we just need to be aware that some of the time it is more early identification of SEND will really help that student. The longer we leave it, the more difficult that's going to become, the more we're going to see that behaviour. Again, Scott, let, let me let me sort of play devil's advocate again, if I can, with that, is there will be those who will say, um, I can give you an example of a school where behaviour is fantastic, you know, excellent, uh, where the students all achieve or seem to achieve really well um, and they seem to be happy and, you know, and they get really good exam results and they you know, the families are happy and so on and so forth that have um, uh, sort of a, a send register that's probably the size of like, you know, um, I don't know what, but you know what I mean? With no, hardly any uh, diagnosis of send within, yeah. within the school. So are we, are, are you, so in, in your model, are you saying that schools like that are sort of, consciously not diagnosing real issues or as others would argue is to say that do you see what i'm saying yeah uh, one of the things i would say with that is really if you've not had a push on send you've not identified those students with send to begin with then automatically your data compared to a school that is identifying that need is going to be massively um not comparative at all because if you've got, and this is what I was reading a bit of research that looked particularly at um, Asian students, uh, Chinese students, in fact, sorry, Chinese students, they were talking about in terms of background and this idea of parental pushing, pushing students forward, um, that there's a lot more pushing education, a lot less of a um, sort of a no excuses and that let's not try and focus on getting a SEND diagnosis and um, bits and pieces like that. And traditionally, or actually even traditionally, in the UK, Chinese students outperform in terms of progress all of the groups. But actually, they have the greatest gap between SEND students and non-SEND students. 
that would actually show the opposite of what's being said. If we're getting less support there for that group that have got that parental push and that support, yet send students are lagging massively behind, it shows a, a different picture. Yeah, uh, yeah, really, really good answer. Um, uh, Chris, do you want to sort of come in here on anything? We've we've only got a couple of minutes left, so we're going to sort of wrap it up in a, in a couple of minutes with sort of um, it sounds like a presidential debate or something, but closing <laughs> statements. Um, but uh, just before we do it, a, a massive thanks to John Cat for partnering with us on this show and all our shows at Teachers Talk Radio. We appreciate you and thank you very much. And if you want to find out more or maybe you want to listen to a show featuring a John Cat author, you can just go to our website, ttradio.org forward slash listen back and search on there. Um, Chris, do you have any sort of final comments or anything you you want to say based on everything we've talked about tonight? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> coming, <laughs> coming up with a, a comment. No. I, I've I still just... got your jeans. I feel oh, really yeah. bad. They're actually <laughs> like Chris. Just for full disclosure here, everyone. Yeah. I stepped <laughs> in some dog shit, a massive pile of dog shit on the way to an event. And, Chris, and it covered my pants. And I had nothing left to wear, and Chris lent me his jeans, but then I never gave them him back. And I still have them, and they're sat on my bed here in another pile of unwashed clothes. Um, <laughs> and I feel, I just want to say, I feel really bad about that, Chris. It's okay. We'll meet again, and you can hand them over to me. But um, I think in terms of um, what I want to say is, is I think it's, I think we have to think about the students and I think we really need to think about it because I think what I worry most of all is that we kind of, by obsessing about the needs of the most, that we forget about a vulnerable, um, you know, area of students that need our support and our help to access the curriculum and to engage with learning. And for me, you know, sometimes when we're talking about HOPs, we, we are talking about a few little things we're not expecting that much we're looking at a few little things tweaking the process in the lesson that will support and aid them for them to achieve um, their full potential and I think if we're quite blasé about you know these students achieving their full potential then what kind of society are we in at the moment that we're forgetting and ignoring a vulnerable part of society I'll leave it at that. Brilliant. Chris, you've, you've, thanks so much for coming on tonight. Um, honestly, really interesting to hear your sort of story, your experience. So really, really appreciate you giving up your time. So thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Um, also, massive thanks to David. Chloe is there. Chloe, we're not going to have time to talk to you. Massive apologies. However, next Monday, I've got Ben Newmark on and we are going to talk about his experience um and hopefully sort of tune in to um his story and and the things that he wants to say about this this issue so it'll be a similar topic so if anybody wants to sort of listen in or call in or get involved next monday at the same time in the conversation which i think is a good one to have and i think it's a good one to listen to different views to to learn things, to share things. And that's really what Teachers Talk Radio is all about, is to hear different views. So if anybody has any comments or any views or anything they want to say, then please get in touch for next Monday. Please maybe call in. 
maybe get in touch with Teachers Talk Radio, come on as a guest. So massive thanks, Chris, and um, maybe speak, well, speak to you again. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Thank you. Um, massive thanks to David, who came on earlier on, and Margarita. Um, Scott, thanks for calling in as well with that um, really nice comment at the end. Um, and thanks to everybody for listening. Um, a lot of listeners tonight. Uh, oh, and Cassie, Cassie called in. Cassie, thank you. It's like an award ceremony. Don't forget to thank God. Um, but yeah, Cassie, thanks for calling in as well. Um, and thanks to everybody for listening in to the show. It's it's been it's been really amazing and enlightening. So good night and You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.